It's the Locked On Podcast Network, your team every day. You are Locked On MLB, your daily MLB podcast, part of the Locked On Podcast Network, your team every day. Hello, baseball fans. Welcome to Lockdown MLB, part of the Lockdown Podcast Network, where it's your team every day. This is the daily podcast. We talk about all of Major League Baseball. I'm your host, Paul Francis Sullivan. Please call me Sully. On today's episode, we are being joined by the wonderful author of many baseball books, including a personal favorite of mine, Don dynastic, bombastic, fantastic, easy for you to say, author Jason Turbo. You could follow our show on Twitter at Pod. You could follow me. I'm your pal, Sully. I'm at Sully Baseball on Twitter, Sully Baseball Podcast on Instagram. And please listen to the show on the free and easy-to-use Himalaya podcasting app or wherever you get your podcasts. And during these still, we're not out of the woods times, Please tell your smart device to play podcast Locked On MLB or check out some of the other great shows of the Locked On Podcast Network, including Locked On A's and Locked On Today. Now, we have so many great things going on. We have so many great stories happening in spring training, but I'm going to bring it back a little bit because I am going to bring on the author of a truly fabulous book about baseball and has a new book coming out now, a Fellow Palo Alton, I just found out, along with myself, it is Jason Turbo. How are you doing? I'm good. Thanks for having me on, Sully. I'm going to – maybe I should screen capture where you are right now because right behind you, you have, like, wonderful Oakland A's memorabilia, including a green Oakland A's cowboy hat, which you informed me was given out by Vita Blue in 1972. Is that is that was uh... that's sort of correct. It was given out by Charlie Finley in 1972 okay. to everybody on the team. And, right, right. and the one I own was was once once belonged to Vita Blue. It's inscribed okay. inside the blue no, That makes more sense. And there's you all this uh, looks like you've got a classic green A's warm up jacket behind you. That's was that also from that era? That's from 1967 and belonged to Ken Harrelson. It's got these cla- classic leather-lined pockets. It's it's weird when when you delve into writing a book about a team and an era. At least personally, mm-hmm. I delved in so far that I had to I had to immerse myself as much as I could, and that meant surrounding myself with memorabilia. I'm kind of in that boat right now. As I mentioned before, I'm working on a book, which is tentatively c- titled October 1972, and it's about the four teams that played the greatest postseason in baseball history. And this is not out of nostalgia for me. I was an infant and I have very few memories of that postseason as a seven month old. But the fact that all those series went the distance, it was filled with Hall of Famers, filled with crazy plays, trick plays, bats being thrown, steals of home in critical situations, uh, walk off crazy walk off wins when you're on the verge of elimination. Both the Reds and the Tigers won games where they're on the verge of being eliminated for with wild rallies. And there was also social aspects of obviously Harris versus Squares, the Roberto Clemente led Pirates, the Billy Martin losing his mind, Charlie Finley's middle finger to the world, Jackie Robinson's final public appearance. Johnny Bench thought he had may have had cancer. All of these things were happening 
at the same time. And the book is written as this happened. And it's written chronologically, but with the idea that these were all piling on top of each other chronologically. The suspension of Campaneris, uh, uh, you know, and some other Jackie Robinson wondering whether or not he should go. So while I'm working on that, I'm surrounded by things like I have scorecards from there. I have posters from there. I have all of the the play-by-play recordings of every game that I've been memorizing. So yeah, that's what happens when you dive headfirst into a book. Yeah, it really is. I mean, I, I spent time on eBay buying every photo I could of those team members, and my office walls were just plastered with them. Um, there's still a few left, but but I've managed to kind of transition into something else now. Well, I will tell you a. There's, I have many, many sources, and I've read several uh, biographies of and, and autobiographies of some of the main characters of it. But a book that is going to be in my bibliography, and I've now read beginning to end twice, and had it read to me by the by my guest day is Dynastic, Bombastic, Fantastic, which is a title which sounds like it was written by Walt Clyde Frazier. But this is the story, not just of 72, but really that whole, the whole magnificent era of the A's improbable rise to power and spectacular crash to earth that happened with really one of the most fascinating and bizarre figures in baseball history, which was Charlie Finley. Yeah, I mean, the the book is about their three straight titles, 72, 73, 74. And, and, and you can't tell that story without explaining how the team got to that point. And you can't really tell the story without explaining how the team fell from that point. And I didn't go in with the ambition of making Charlie Finley the primary character. I had a blank slate when I started this project, but it became very clear very quickly that his fingerprints were all over this team to such a degree that almost nothing that happened good or bad with those A's was not directly attributable to Charlie Finley in some way. The guy is is a monster. He's, he's mammoth in baseball history. And I'll just say, again, this may be a self-serving thing to do, but when I started writing my thing, it didn't start taking shape until I figured out who the main characters were. And I knew Roberto Clemente and Johnny Bench and Billy Martin were going to be main characters and Jackie and his decision to appear. And at first, I thought, should it be Dick Williams? Should it be Reggie Jackson? Should it be Catfish? Like, no, it's obviously Finley. He was, there was, you're right, there's not one aspect of the team, whether it's the color of the uniform, their existence in Oakland, the mustaches on their faces, why Catfish Hunter is called Catfish Hunter, why there's so much tension. It's all funneled from this vol- this green and gold volcano that burst in the, on the East Bay, who is a never-ending wellspring of genius, insanity, stupidity, and intelligence all mashed into one really weird man. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, well, that's why he's so compelling. Charlie Finley was utterly complex. And a moment ago, I, I used the word monster to just describe him. I was talking about the size of his presence, but yeah. I, I could also have been talking about the, the way he approached his business and the way the people who worked for him uh, viewed him. I mean, the guy was an egomaniac. He he could never glorify himself enough. He, he passed all, all the praise to the top of the food chain. That said, 
he worked harder than anybody. He was a visionary in many ways. He had many, many good ideas, along with his many, many bad ideas. And it still blows my mind that he's not in the Hall of Fame. Oh, that there's no excuse for that. Bowie Kuhn is in the Hall of Fame and he's not is pure insanity. Yes, he had absolutely cuckoo for Cocoa Puffs ideas like having a mechanical rabbit rise from the back of the uh, the batting uh, around the was it was by the on deck circle? Oh, it was right behind the plate. Yeah. Yeah. This rabbit would come up and, and give a ball. It had a basket of balls. It was it was so it was to eliminate the need for ball boys to run out new balls to the umpire. The umpire just had to press a button and Harvey the mechanical rabbit would rise from the ground with a basket full of baseballs, fresh baseballs for him. He also had a thing called little blowhard to to avoid the umpire having to sweep off the plate, pressed a button, a little vacuum popped up and blew the dirt in every direction and scared the bejesus out of, of hitters that didn't know it was coming. And he also, I mean, like, obviously he he really thought a mule was hilarious. I mean, the more you read it, he just thought, oh, I brought this mule. Everyone was laughing at the mule. He had a mule named after himself, which became the, I guess, replaced the elephant as the the visual mascot for the A's. And that was just weird. His, his petting zoo that he had in right field of when they played in Kansas City was a bit bananas and the fact that he he really played cities and people off of each other like he was in kansas city and he tried to move everywhere but kansas city like he was gonna he wanted to move to louisville he wanted to move to atlanta it looked like they were going to move to dallas all you know seattle wanted him san diego was talking in all these different places finally he went to oakland which in a way was the worst place for him to go because <laughs> the minute he landed there he said oh maybe we can move to new orleans and yeah, well, that was that was his thing. I mean, he for some reason he was fixated on the Bay Area. I think it was because the Oakland Coliseum was brand new, fifty thousand seats. He had dollar signs in his eyes. He hired a firm to research the benefits, the pros and cons of different cities, and instructed that firm to tell me to move to Oakland. And, and then he did. And when he did, he said, "Look, I bought a team located in Kansas City. It was my choice to move it out of Kansas City. It was also my choice to move it to Oakland. I'm here to stay." And then immediately set about looking for other other locations to move his team to. By the way, this is the year they will have spent as many years in Oakland as they did in Philadelphia. That this is the year that Oakland matches that. So that if they're still there in 2022, Oakland will be the longest stretch they've been in any one city. So a lot of his ideas were crazy. He also had crazy ideas like the designated hitter, night baseball games, expansion of the playoffs, the all and he had he, he had a lot of really forward thinking ideas the ideas of a wild card he was kicking around the concept of that realignment he was kicking around the idea of interleague play of which all of which were poo-pooed and all of which are now just integral parts of baseball which he was talking about in the late 60s early 70s yeah i mean part of his his visionary nature was was not even that he came up with all of the ideas i mean he didn't invent the designated hitter, as it had been kicking around for decades. Connie Mack would have brought it up at one point. Yeah, his was the loudest voice in the room calling for it. It wouldn't have happened probably when it did without Charlie Finley. He didn't invent night baseball, but he got he got Major League Baseball to start World Series games at night so that the working man might be able to tune in. He got them to start on Saturdays for that very reason. Early on, you talked about the petting zoo in Kansas City. He was all about the fans. He tried so many promotions that seem wacky now. He had Farmer's Night. 
which kind of played in, in Kansas City, right? He was surrounded mm -hmm. by farmland. Then he moved it to Oakland. It didn't play so well, and he changed it to Hot Pants Night. That right. played much better. He never stopped trying to draw the fans up until the moment he realized it wasn't really going to happen in Oakland, right? They, they drew 5,000 people their second night ever in Oakland and, and never, never reached a million. Even the year they reached a million, he had to cook the books. He kept saying, well, it's because we're a terrible team. Well, they became a good team and didn't draw. He said, it's because we don't have a superstar. Reggie Jackson emerged. They didn't draw. He said, it's because we've never won a championship. They won three in a row and they still didn't draw. And that's when he stopped trying. That's when he, his, his endless fountain of creative marketing kind of dried up and he just kind of wrote out the strength. I had to take my car in the other day because my check engine light came on. Fortunately, it was nothing serious, but if it was and I needed to get something for my car, there's only one place where I would go, and that's rockauto.com. You know, chain stores have different price tiers for professional mechanics and do-it-yourselfers. rockauto.com's prices are the same for everybody. They're reliably low, and they always offer the lowest prices possible rather than changing prices based on what the market will bear like airlines do. rockauto.com is for everybody. It doesn't require membership or an account login. They have everything from engine control modules to brake parts to tail lamps, motor oil, even a new carpet. Whether it's for your classic or my Ford Fiesta, get everything you need in just a few easy clicks. Deliver directly to your door. Go to rockauto.com right now. See all the parts available for your car or truck. Write locked on in their how did you hear about us box so they know that we sent you. Amazing selection and reliably low prices. All the parts your car will ever need at rockauto.com. Today on the Locked On Today podcast, two top teams in the NBA's Western Conference battle it out before the All-Star break. Will the Suns and Lakers meet again in the Western Conference Finals? Get more of the sports news you need in less time with the Locked On Today podcast. Subscribe to Locked On Today wherever you get podcasts. I think there there's comes a point and I was rereading part of your book last night and and I would and in some of the other books that I've read about the topic I can almost pinpoint it to when he had his heart attack in 1973 that even when they when they won the world series in 72 and it was he's dancing on the dugout with his wife and Dick Williams and his wife and he gave out these massively ornate rings and gave out replicas of the World Series trophies to each of the players and and made a bunch of you know, really smart moves. I'm going to get to him as a smart baseball man in a second. But he had his heart attack. And in, I think it was August or September of 1973. It was August. Yeah. And he was, and of course, he was constantly tinkering with his manager. He almost fired Dick Williams during the 1972 season where they wound up winning the World Series when they went on a slump and they the White Sox caught him for a little bit. Then cooler heads prevailed. But he loved switching out managers and, and changing managers around. But when he came back from his heart attack in 73, there seemed to be more vindictive and angry and not as pleasant which led to the Mike Andrews controversy in the World Series when Mike Andrews, who was a defensive replacement, he was only on the roster because of a roster move bungle that Finley himself made that didn't allow Manny Trio to be eligible. Mike Andrews 
was on the as a defensive replacement made two errors although instant replay would have shown he only made one error in a key inning against the Mets and he tried to have him removed from the roster to fake an injury basically and humiliated Mike Andrews and try to basically cut him from the team during the World Series to replace him with Trio and it led to the team revolting and almost sit almost boycotting and there was like so he became almost more vindictive after that and like when they won the world series again and williams left and they got really chintzy rings and there was no not as many promotions that were made and they almost didn't have a tv contract and it almost felt like he was f this after that and it never he no longer was the bombastic loud promotional man he was this bitter angry man lashing out at his own team even though they won another world series in 74 yeah i think you're right and we're talking on parallel tracks here one is his civic engagement and one is his engagement with the team right and and absolutely up until that heart attack he had been very engaged with the team he would give them bonuses he did unbelievably nice things for them he would invest their money with with this unbeatable guarantee that even if, if even if the stocks he chose tanked, he would refund the entire amount. And in the days when players were making $20,000, that was that was a big deal. So in 1973, he had this heart attack. And because he wore so many hats with the A's, I mean, he he was heading the marketing and promotions. He was the general manager. He was the owner. He, in, he told everybody else how to do their jobs anyway. The, the, the operation kind of ground to a halt when he was disabled. And I don't think he felt the love from his team that he wanted. And granted, his ego mandated some <laughs> some, some overly expressive love that, that just wasn't forthcoming from the players. Uh, and, and that started to turn him. And when the Mike Andrews thing happened, man, in his mind, he forever proclaimed that he did it for the good of the team. He wanted to replace an, a, an injured player who was ineffective, Mike Andrews. Who, who was who was signed midseason to be a, a right-handed pinch hitter? Yeah. Never intended to play the field because he had an injured shoulder. They knew this coming in, and yet somehow there he was playing the field in, in the highest pressure moment of the season. He tried to replace him, and every player on the team took it as, "Oh my God, he's trying to fire us." He's, you know, he, if he could fire Mike Andrews, he could fire me, and if he could do it during the World Series, he could do it whenever he wanted. And that was the source of the revolt. They were sticking up for Andrews, and they were also sticking up for themselves. And, and the next day was, was media day in New York, the firing Andrews. The Andrews game happened after game two in Oakland. They traveled to New York, spent the next day working out, and the players spent that day on the field in Shea Stadium slagging Charlie Finley to whatever media member wanted to stick a microphone in their faces. It didn't stop. They were relentless, and they were right. Everything they said was accurate. But Finley took it very, very personally. And he never really forgave his players for that. And 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 you're you're absolutely correct. That is where all the niceties stopped. That's where he started sending them on commercial flights and going with cheap food and making them pay for their own publicity shots, and and every, you know, all all the trappings of being a big leaguer went away for that team starting then. And and ironically, they went on to win another World Series. I mean, like that became the the year where he was cutting everything down. I think the I think you mentioned one of those years it was either seventy four or seventy five. Their radio contract was basically with a college station in Richmond or or in in Berkeley or like it like it it you had to basically sit in the parking lot to hear the game. It was so weak. UC Berkeley was 
was the flagship station for a, a short amount of time. The 15-watt broadcast did not even reach the Oakland Coliseum. That's and what it was. That's what it was, right. <laughs> I, I knew there was some connection with the radio station of the Coliseum you wrote the book. That's, that's what it was. Before you leave this topic, a UC Berkeley undergrad handled the play-by-play -play duties because it was a college radio station, which is how Larry Bear came to be an Oakland A's play-by-play -play guy for a few weeks. He's now, of course, in charge of the San Francisco Giants. Right. That's unbelievable. You almost think of, I, I love, I do what's called What If Wednesdays on this podcast and where I think about what if one thing happened. Normally it's like, what if like Nelson Cruz had timed his leap better and the Rangers won the World Series? Usually it's something like that. But then there's been also, what if this team hadn't moved here? What if the strike didn't happen? How would that have affected this, that, and the other thing? And I just thought of a what if, which is what if Charlie Finley sold the team after he had a heart attack what if he looked up and said no i can't handle the team anymore with the defending champs hand the reins over and a normal owner took over the team and or like kept charlie in some sort of honorary position or something like that would they have kept hunter and fingers and jackson the way that the core of the dodgers and the way the core of the orioles were kept together and the core of the pirates and the reds for the most part were kept together through the end of the 70s. And I can't help but wonder the the torrential uh, downpour of events that took place after that heart attack, where Williams was gone after the 73 series. series. Uh, Catfish was gone after the 74 season because of the, the payment to, what was this, an insurance policy or an annuity plan or something like that, that he was late on a payment and that voided the contract. And then Reggie was gone after 75 because he saw free agent free agency was coming and he was going to get something for Reggie. And by 77, the team was, was I think I made the team in 77. I was five. Yeah, yeah I mean, it, it's a really interesting question. And I, I, I think you laid out a few of the specifics. Dick Williams quit immediately after game seven of the 1973 World Series in the Victorious Clubhouse. Champagne is flying around him. He makes the announcement to the press, I'm done. Like, I can't take anymore. He didn't say it at the time. It was because he couldn't take Charlie Finley. He couldn't mm -hmm. take the meddling. Another owner's in there. Dick Williams probably doesn't quit. They don't get Alvin Dark, who many people say they won in spite of, not because of. Catfish Hunter left strictly because of Finley. You, you mentioned the insurance annuity. It was not unusual for players at the time to defer portions of their salary and be paid later when after their careers when they were in a lower tax bracket. Hunter had the bright idea, instead of deferring the money, to pay it into an insurance annuity, which also would mature later, but which he didn't have to pay taxes on. Charlie Finley did. And Finley agreed to it, but when he realized that he'd, he'd be on the hook for about $25,000 worth of taxes, he refused to pay that portion of Hunter's salary. And that's what led to Hunter being declared a free agent. That wouldn't have happened with a different owner. And the, the biggest piece is free agency. I mean, right in the middle of the A's magical run, free, first arbitration and then free agency came around. And Charlie Finley could not harbor a structure, a structural framework in which he didn't hold all the power. And free agency for the first time gave power to the players. And it's really easy to see that across the country, a guy who knew how to play the new game, George Steinbrenner, played it expertly and won back-to-back -back World Series using Charlie Finley's two best players, yeah. Reggie Jackson and Catfish Hunter. Yeah. If, if you get a different owner in there who is more 
more attuned to new school baseball at the time. I don't I don't think those guys leave, certainly not in the numbers they did, because they all left yeah. in a couple of years. Oh, yeah. I mean, they're by, there was a weird sort of contract hiccup that that kept Vida Blue in the A's for one more year. So he didn't get traded away until the end of the 77 season. But yeah, Bando was gone. Tennis was gone. They traded Reggie Jackson and basically in a deal involving Don Baylor and Mike Torres. And they both were gone. I think everyone was gone. Bet online, the fastest and easiest way to bet on all your sports action. Football might be over, but NBA, college basketball, and the NHL are in full swing. BetOnline even covers awards, TV shows, and reality TV. Real-time, updated odds and props on almost anything you can imagine. BetOnline has you covered for all the news, scores, and odds. It's the best way to place your bets, and it's free to sign up. Head to the website or use your mobile device to sign up today and receive your 50% welcome bonus on your first deposit. BetOnline. Your online sportsbook experts. Promo code locked on. New game day shirt? Boom. Cash back. Food for the tailgate? Boom. Cash back. Even buying around can earn you cash back when you use your debit card. And yes, we said debit card. With Discover Cashback Debit, everyone can earn cash back on everyday purchases. In sports, it's hard to predict who's taking the win, but you know what's guaranteed to win? Discover Cashback Debit. Did I mention there are no fees, period? This one is a real game changer. Check out transaction eligibility and terms at discover.com slash cashback debit. Discover Bank. Member FDIC. If you're the type of baseball fan that can't help but get giddy over prospects, we have the podcast for you. Locked on MLB Prospects, hosted by minor league play-by-play voice Aram Lighton. It's the only daily podcast devoted entirely to the stars of tomorrow. From team-focused farm system breakdowns, prospect rankings, and interviews with some of the brightest up-and-comers of the game, Locked on MLB Prospects is the best way to stay plugged in on the future of your favorite team. Subscribe today wherever you get podcasts. I do want to say one thing in a couple of things in Finley's intense defense, which was as a general manager of the team and as the person pulling the strings, he put together a team that included Catfish Hunter when a lot of people backed off of him because he had a hunting accident and he shot his foot, which, by the way, they had to come up with a nickname for him. He came up with the catfish, which was a fake story about a fake event in his life. And yet he shot his foot with buckshot. What's wrong with buckshot, Hunter? That would have actually been based on something that happened in his life. But, you know, he wined and dined Hunter and Blue Moon Odom. He, you know, they put together a team with Sal Bando, Raleigh Fingers, Rick Monday, who he flipped for Ken Holtzman, drafted Reggie Jackson when he was passed over by the Mets, learned how to use the draft very well right off the out of the gate. Campanet found Campanet. He put together a remarkable homegrown team, made a bunch of really smart trades. And when a lot of the tinkering that was done in season went like would bring in Fossey, would bring in. Billy North, who was a good center fielder for them for a time, made sure to put together the pitching staff. And even after Hunter left, got him back into the playoffs. And when he was stripped of the team, you know, he was he put he was smart in putting together the team. And I can't help but wonder 
because he was flushed with cash when he was able to sign all those players. If he was able to sell the contracts of Bando and Tennis and Fingers and Rudy, all the players that he wanted to sell and get a big pile of cash, would he have then put together another new team built around Mitchell Page, Tony Armas, who he had acquired? And oh yeah, he signed a player named Ricky Henderson, who only became the greatest offensive player in the history of the A's, whether in Philadelphia, Kansas City, or Oakland. I can't help but wonder if Bowie Kuhn had let him rebuild the team or sell the team off, if he could have flipped it even quicker than they did. That was his claim. He, he, that was the case he made to Bowie Kuhn when, when Kuhn overturned his player sales of Fingers and Rudy to the Red Sox and, and Vita Blue to the Yankees. He, Finley would have reaped millions of dollars for those three sales midseason that would have swung the balance of power in the American League East. Those sales were overturned. And, and Finley said, I don't have the money to play the new game. I need money to rebuild my team. But the commissioner did not believe him, nor should he have. And Finley's forever claim that he, he needed it, he needed to restock. But his plan all along was to get rich and then sell the team itself. Right? He was going to sell the team for the same amount of money with or without those players. And so he figured, why not nab an extra few million in the process? Finley's son told me this. <laughs> yeah, I'm, I'm okay. on fairly good authority. Okay, Maybe I'm romanticizing Finley a little bit here. So I, 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 this is why I have you on. You're setting me straight. Yeah, I mean, he was, I mean, I, I, I hate to compare Charlie Finley to Donald Trump, but, but there are a lot of personality similarities. And Finley mm-hmm. was not above telling the stories that would best suit him in the moment, regardless of their veracity. Mm-hmm. All right. Well, uh, I want everyone to know it was Jason Turbo who made the Trump comparison, not to me. So please, please don't send your angry emails to me. But the best way to get, if you're angry at that comparison, the best way to get back at Jason Turbo is to go buy his book, Dynastic, Bombastic, and Fantastic, pay full price, and then burn it. That, and then keep doing it. Just keep buying them. Yeah. It, it would it would teach me a lesson if you bought multiple. <laughs> I've always loved that when people buy something and then burn it. It's like, hey, you 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 bought it. They're, they're, what you do with it afterwards is not really is not really their issue there. But I, I also have they bled blue about the 1981 Dodgers and the baseball codes, which people are also welcome to buy en masse and and set on fire. Yeah, I know, and I, I I mean I could have you on for all of these books, and obviously I'm on a big look at we say Finley over over shadows everything of that time i was ready to talk about that whole era and we've talked about nothing but finley yeah easily easily and by the way the most of uh, the marvin miller i read that this in the book another great baseball book called the lords of the realm was marvin miller and some of the some of the people that the newly uh emboldened baseball players association kind of gulped when Charlie Finley made his suggestion, well, if we're going to be free agents, make all the players free agents. If they want freedom, give every player free, you know, free agency every year. Yep. And the Players Association realized, oh, no, if we do that, then supply and demand swings in the favor of the owners again. But because it was Finley making that suggestion, all the owners blocked him out. I said, no, 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 we get five years with the players and then they become free agents, not realizing that that gave the players so much power in bargaining for contracts. 
And if they had listened to Charlie Finley, not that I'm ever going to take the owner's side on anything, but if they had listened to Charlie Finley, they could have kept salaries low or relatively low. That's absolutely correct. And Marvin Miller, the only only person in the room from the owner's side of the table that scared him was Finley for exactly that reason. He, He knew exactly what would happen if everyone became a free agent every year. And Finley was the only guy calling for it. And as with many of his ideas, it was encumbered among his peers by the fact that it came from Charlie Finley. That was really the only thing working against it, and it was enough. Yeah. He belongs in the Hall of Fame. I have no idea what good a person he was. I don't know any, I don't know how he was as a human being outside of baseball. I'm sure we can find out he he would not survive today's culture. But as someone who left the thumbprint on the game of baseball, there's when you list what teams have won three straight World Series, you have a few Yankee teams, and then you have the Oakland A's. You don't have Earl Weaver's Orioles. You don't have John McGraw's Giants. You don't have Connie Mack's A's. You don't have the Gas House Gang. You don't have the Big Red Machine. You don't have the Bobby Cox Braves. All these great teams in our history, none of them could pull off the three-peat. Just the mighty Yankees and this bizarre blip this green and yellow blip filled with wonderful players and players who kind of seemed greater than the sum of their parts in some points. When you look at the years, yes, Catfish had some great years and Reggie had some great years, but you look at said, yeah, they, they were, they had good players. They just seemed to always win. They seemed to mm-hmm. always win. And unlike any roster that could be compiled in the, the modern game, these guys all came up together. They'd known each other since single A, and they knew each other's games inside and out. And, and one of the goals I gave myself in approaching this book was to figure out the secret sauce of that team. Because it's obvious, they're not, they're not loaded with Hall of Famers. They've got Reggie, who's a clear Hall of Famer, and Raleigh Fingers and Catfish Hunter, who you know are, are somewhat lesser Hall of Famers. Uh, and then a bunch of really good players. And I think the secret sauce is their willingness to hold each other utterly accountable for everything all the time. Part of the, the joy of writing this book was hearing the behind the scenes stories of, of the fistfights in the clubhouse and, and how antagonistic the players were with each other. And, and yet they managed to win in spite of that. But the reality is, is that they won because of that. They held each other so thoroughly accountable that sometimes egos would get bruised. And sometimes things would escalate into, into actual fisticuffs. But that kept it all locked down on the field to a degree that none of their opponents understood. The Reds looked at the 1972 World Series and said, these guys have no chance against us, and then lost. In, in 75, the Dodgers said the same thing, and they lost in five games. Or 74. No, uh, 74. You're right. Sorry. I skipped yeah. it. It's been two years. But uh, no, in, in, work, in working on my 72 book, one of the things that's fascinating to me, because it's interesting to when you already know the ending and how the A's, especially because Reggie was injured for the World Series, their bullpen was weakened because they didn't have Knowles, who was their left-handed ace, and they had to use Vida Blue, who had a – people talk about like he had a horrible season. He, he had a sub-three ERA and pitched 200-something. I mean, he, he actually had a good year, but because he was the Cy Young Award winner of the – and there was the contract holdout. It made it seem worse. But both, he was in the Vita Blue was in the bullpen, and so there was this whole sense of the team 
is not at full strength and these are the mighty reds and reading all the quotes about pete rose saying we just played the we just played the world series meaning when they beat the pirates who are the defending champs and were arguably better in 72 than they were in 71 when they won the world series and they were they were they were such a deep team at least, especially in their lineup and that the reds were prohibitive favorites in that world series and then the a's went up three to one and 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 almost won it in five mm-hmm. and you know if they if they went on one more rally and it was a lot of the maneuvering by Dick Williams, all the pinch hitters, all the 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 moving the parts around, using blue out of the bullpen in three or four key situations. He got the save in game one of the World Series, Vita Blue did. And you look at them, one team is loaded with Hall of Famers, or Pete Rose, obviously, his his playing career denotes that he was a Hall of Famer. And the other was you have a revolving door second baseman, George Hendrick, who I think was 14 years old in center field. <laughs> Matty Alou's a part-time player in right field. Dick and and Gene Tennis, all the talk of who the best catcher that year was it Sanguian or was it Bench? And all of a sudden Gene Tennis has four homers. Gene and, Tennis didn't have a starting job until late August. Yeah. And and suddenly just turned it on. Those are the kind of performances you need if you're going to win, especially as an underdog. <laughs> and everyone on that team says Gene Tennis doesn't get hot. We don't win that series. That guy, that guy had, I mean. He, he broke Babe Ruth's World Series mm-hmm. offensive records in that series. He was, he was homering on, on every other pitch. It's funny. I, I sat down with him, and, and he was talking about it, how he walked up to the plate, and all of a sudden, for his first at-bat, all of a sudden, the noise stopped. It was utterly silent. Never experienced this before in his life. Pitcher Gary Nolan, I think, threw a fastball that, that tennis thought, man, he must have been injured. That thing came in so slow and was wondering why nobody was going out to check on him. Turns out it was a regular fastball, but tennis was somehow so locked in that it appeared just to be sitting on a tee. Everyone, I, if you're a baseball fan and you want to read not just what happened in the game, but get the behind the scenes flavor and feel like you get to know the players and who they are. I really can't suggest the book Dynastic, Bombastic and Fantastic by Jason Turbo enough Jason Turbo could read me a book to bed while I'm falling asleep at night and, and in a soothing voice. I figure we could probably continue talking for another hour and a half if we didn't both have lives outside of the world of talking about the A's. But is a, this is a exactly. great, great book. I love, I love your style and I love the in-depth and I love the fact that it captures a thing of baseball that, that stats and statistical analysis just can't capture, which is getting a sense of who the players are and rooting or just being intrigued by the human beings. And you can't read this book and not just be transfixed, not necessarily rooting for all of them, but you, you, you can't look away and it's fascinating. And it's a really wonderful book. This would thank you. This is a team of of deep humanity. And and hopefully I, I brought that to the fore before we go. I would also like to promote an organization. I'm with the pandemic baseball book club. We're, gathering new authors of current baseball books, both last year and this year, into kind of a a collective. We have lots of one-on-one interviews about those books. We have numerous panel discussions and interesting things going on. You can check us out at pbbclub.com or just Google Pandemic Baseball Book Club. And I'm going to put the links to that on the Twitter handle, which is locked on MLB Pod, and I'll see what we could post it on Instagram, which I am still a dunce at using. Well... 
talking A's, talking green and gold, and inevitably talking Charlie Finley. I wonder when the moment that Charlie Finley's influence on the team finally was released. I guess you can't say that anymore because they're still in Oakland. They're still green and gold. It's still there. And they still, yeah. I guess, I guess that's always going to be there. Well, you, I, I can't, I can't, I can't argue with that. Well, I know who isn't always going to be there because we have to get back to our lives. We'll be Jason Turnbow, but thanks so much for talking to us. This has been Locked on MLB. I'm your host, Paul Francis Sullivan. Please call me Sully. Hey, Prime members. You can listen to this Locked On podcast ad-free on Amazon Music. Download the Amazon Music app today.